Welcome to the Safety with Purpose Women in Safety podcast. This is a show that provides a supportive space for women in safety careers. We break down the barriers and provide opportunities for growth. Make sure to hit that subscribe button to be notified of new episodes and join us at safetywithpurpose.com. Now, here's your Women in Safety podcast host, Tamara Paris. Welcome back, listeners, and thank you for joining us for another episode if you're a returning listener, and welcome if you're new to the Women in Safety show. Now, I'm your host, Tamara Paris, if you're new to the show, and I'm going to be having a fireside chat with Dr. Susan Barn, the CEO of Tap Into Safety, and Dr. Philippa Milne, a specialist trainer at Rio Tinto about psychological risk, and how does it impact health and safety in our business. Now, I've got some really exciting news that we're going to be doing the Health and Safety Online Conference in October 2020, and it's free for attendees to join. Now, let's get into the discussion. Hear the word psychological risk a lot of times. Um, Very frequently, it's now become the buzzword psychological risk. But how do you guys see it impacting a business? Give us some tangible examples. I'll throw to you, Philippa, first, if you like. Oh, sure. Okay. Well, I guess some of the more obvious risk factors that correlate with employee health outcomes include the workload that people have, um, If they have a lot of emotional demands in their roles, such as firefighters and police. Role conflict we see being problematic as well. Obviously, bullying and harassment. Um, Sometimes the opportunities for getting feedback from a supervisor can also be another situation which causes issues for employees. Um, So there's, there's a bunch of different things that psychological risk in business affect. And I guess the important thing is how do we combat it? How do we buffer that? And that's where I like to talk about psychological safety as well as a mechanism for buffering psychological risk. And it's become quite interesting in organisations in the last couple of years, I'm finding, particularly in Australia, we're actually talking about psychological risk in the realm of safety whereas predominantly or or previously it was all around physical safety. And for many health and safety professionals, this is actually a real challenge to them because all of a sudden they're having to think about psychological risk. And even today, many of them sort of say, well, that's actually not our problem. That's a HR problem or a well-being person. You know, it's one of those people and culture people over there that have to try and sort that out. It's not our issue. But, of course, legislation is now requiring that um, businesses cover physical and psychological risk. And I just hear and see so many safety professionals simply out of their depth. They just don't know what to do with it at all. I totally agree with you on that. Um, I come from a social work background, so I come at safety a very different perspective. I look more at I'm a resource for the employees, and then let's open up the discussion as the professional doing your job, what is it that you need in order to be able to do that better? And so when we are looking at health and safety, 
concerns. How do you see psychological risk impacting that? Well, Philip and I were having this discussion ourselves just the other day. Mm-hmm. As in, so you're a supervisor or a frontline manager. Okay, so an employee comes to you and says, look, I'm actually having some mental health concerns. I'm not feeling so great at the moment. There's usually polarised responses. Uh, Either one, don't want to know about it. This is not my problem. Therefore, not empathetic and not actually, you know, being supportive. Um, You know, go see HR. The other option or the other side of of the coin is that they're, overly protective, overly involved and then considered interfering and then at risk, of course, of affecting their own mental health because they're taking on a load that's not theirs. So the the discussion Philip and I have had is like, what is the actual response you should have when someone comes to you saying that they're not doing so well with their mental health? And maybe Philippa might like to, you know, put a psychological view on this because I'm not a a psychologist, I'm actually a social scientist. (laughs) It is. And I think one of the keys, um, as we've talked about before, so is putting processes in place so the EHS professional knows what to do or the supervisor knows what to do. One of the problems we have at the moment is that no one's trained in mental health or in psychological risk. So everyone's kind of figuring it out together. Um, And organisations really need some guidance on what mechanisms they can put in place. For example, I work for a mining company and last week I went and did peer support training, which means that I'm now a peer support worker. So if any of my colleagues are having issues, they're welcome to come and talk to me and I can help refer them on to different help sources, um, help them talk to their supervisor if that's what they want to do, help refer them to their EHS professional or HR or a GP, depending on what's appropriate. And that kind of informal slash formal support mechanism in the workplace seems to be pretty effective because when people are having mental health issues, they might be comfortable to come and talk to a peer worker where they're not quite comfortable to go and speak to their supervisor. So that's one of the ways we can start training bigger parts of the workforce so the responsibility doesn't just fall on the EHS professional. It's, it's viewing psychological safety within a risk management framework. And, and that's only a recent move probably in the last two years that I've seen people actually talking about psychological risk as a hazard. It's very interesting. It certainly wasn't like that 10 years ago. No, but isn't that awesome that we've come to this now? Unbelievably, yes, because now we can have procedures and processes. We can have control measures. We can have training. We can actually put it into a framework that a health and safety manager who's a traditional health and safety manager can actually understand and implement. So it is definitely the way to manage psychological risk because otherwise we're back there going, that's not our problem, that's the psych's problem, let's put them over to those people and culture people. That's that's what's happening (laughs) if we address it this way because we need them to own the problem. Because whatever's going on in that environment 
good, bad or otherwise, is actually affecting the psychological risk of their workers, therefore affecting productivity costs and all the things that you were saying earlier, Philippa. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100% agree. It's, it's starting to change, I think, tomorrow because legislation is forcing them to start looking at things in a different way and to start measuring um, the environment against psychological risk and, and, and what it's actually doing in terms of how people are feeling within the work environment and the pressures that they're placed under and, and the jobs that they have to do. So, yeah, but, you know, with any change, any cultural change, because I would suggest this is a cultural thing, it all takes time. Yeah, but if we look at um, how what the risk is that it impacts the business and impacts health and safety, if somebody is is depressed or they're in anxiety, they also are going to be distracted and unable to correctly focus. Oh yeah, they're not present. If I'm functioning a crane, Look, they can be just as impaired as they would be as if they were having, um, they're using drugs or drinking alcohol. Same thing. So I want to, I want to drill down on that. And so in our job, if somebody is drinking alcohol or doing substance abuse, we do get involved. So drill down on how that is similar. Well, actually, I think that maybe, I'm sorry, Philip. I'm not putting you on the spot, but you might be able to help a little <laughs> bit better as to why not being present and um, having a psychological risk here is similar to being impaired with alcohol and, and substance use, misuse. Um, yeah, I, I think we better go to Philippa on that one <laughs> tomorrow. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess the first thing that comes to mind for me is how the symptoms of various mental health issues such as depression, anxiety and stress can manifest within a person. So as you said, Tamara, poor concentration um, can be huge problematic and that's a symptom of depression. Um, and so what happens to the poor worker who's operating a forklift and can't concentrate? This is where we see the rising costs associated with work-related injuries and workers' compensation claims. So that's a direct link for businesses and a direct and large cost, which indicates where they can put their supports, doesn't it? Here's another one for you, fatigue. Fatigue is another psychological risk that we see in many, many workplaces at the moment, especially with rostered workers and in the mining industry. So if you have less than six hours sleep, your brain is functioning as if you've had two or three alcoholic drinks, right? So where then is the duty of care and the burden of responsibility? What happens in terms of liability claims? And this is where the litigation is forcing companies now to come in and, and more define psychological risk and put in the processes around combating it. So does that, does that answer your question? It's getting there. It's getting there. I mean, there's a lot of discussion about, oh, you know, the worker's distracted and, and they're busy on their phone. They're just, you know, they're not paying attention. And I, I, I want to challenge that thinking because I believe that workers are under a lot of stress from different points in their life. And as health and safety professionals, we need to step it back and reflect a little bit more on what might have been occurring before an incident or accident 
that could have led up to this. And so one thing that I'd even like to push further is using, like talking about using the soft skills in order to, to learn more about what was actually going on. Was the person on, just on their phone or could the person have maybe just zoned out? Yes, they talk about being present and look, you know, as human beings, we're present most of the time, but, you know, we all have zone out times, you know, in and out, in and out, and, and, and there's distractions and so on. Um, you can't have 100% concentration 100% of the day. It just doesn't work like that. And hence, we have to have breaks from, you know, tasks that actually cause us mental fatigue because there's definitely tasks that do that. But... I would have thought that a, a thorough accident investigation, and I hate talking about this because I really would prefer that we didn't have accident investigations at all, um, would actually look at what was happening before, prior to that accident, um, and not even just like the minutes before, but what was the day actually like before that happened, or perhaps what, what actually was going on in their life before that happened. But like I said, we're not in the business to um, be mopping up after the accident. We're actually in the business to try and prevent these things from happening. So I, I don't like talking in the mop-up stage. I'd rather be the other way. Oh, sorry, no, I was just commenting. Yeah, it's much better if we can be proactive and train our employees effectively so that we don't come to the mop-up side. And I would even challenge that thinking, Philippa, about training our employees effectively, because as a health and safety professional, what really is my job is to back it way up and look at how can I eliminate the risk from the workplace. If I go back to my hierarchy of controls, that is the first thing that I'm supposed to be looking at. The safety hierarchy, you're right. Many, many businesses work with administrative controls and um, PPE because it's the easy thing to do. However, as we know, our legislation says that we have to start with the higher level control wherever we can and PPE is your last resort. But um, you can't eliminate every single risk and hazard. It's, it's just not possible. There are high risk tasks that have to actually happen. There are moves around the world to try and eliminate hazards completely by making things automated. I mean, mining in Australia is a perfect example with driverless trucks, right? Trying to get people out of the truck, out of that haul pack. But there are times when you simply cannot get someone else Get, get a robot, for example, to do the job for you. You see it in construction. They are manual workers. They will probably be manual workers till the day dot because there is no other way really to do construction except for a couple of things we're seeing where we're getting robotics, where we're, we're building walls and things. But how do you do the fit-outs? How do you do the electrical uh, work? How do you do the plumbing work and so on? So... The goal, I think, for safety professionals is to look at your high-level controls wherever you possibly can. Then go into your isolation controls, which are really good now because you're barricading and you're signing and you're keeping people out of harm's way and only letting people into the zone that should be there. And then go through the hierarchy into substituting and so on and then look at administrative and PPE as your last resort 
And in most cases, you actually need a combination of all of it. You need your PPE and your admin controls together with isolation, for example. So I, I think the safety hierarchy of controls is brilliant. It really, really does guide, but we need to flip the triangle. Start at the top, eliminate, eliminate, eliminate. And if we're doing that, if, if we're starting at the top of the hierarchy and we're working our way down, yep. do you believe that that will alleviate the employee stress level so that then they can be trained more effectively, tune in and, and really focus in on what is the most imperative thing for them to be focusing on as opposed to having so much other stuff to be concerned about? Like, what are your thoughts on that? Well, look, if we take critical risk and we have critical control measures and control measures and we guide people that this is the most important thing that you need to do around this particular risk, just get the one, just get the critical that's easier for them, particularly when you're talking about workers who um, may have low literacy, English language may not be their first language or the country's language may not be their first language. You've got to get it a really simple concept. But when we try and flip this now into psychological risk, now it becomes quite complex because how do we eliminate psychological risk? Philippa probably could comment here, what do you do to eliminate psychological risk? Because that's the higher order of controls. That's really difficult when you're talking about things like role conflict. It's such a variable construct depending on role and organisation. It's really tricky to be able to eliminate that. Other things like um, long work hours and rosters that are really demanding we know that they're psychological risk factors and conceivably we could eliminate those things but of course that needs to be balanced with company interests as well um, mining wouldn't work if we didn't have workers um, working around the clock so there's there's things that we can reduce but we can't eliminate all different psychological risk factors uh, while there are still people in the workforce so how do we manage that? You know, things like jobs that are emotionally demanding, um, harassment in the workplace, not having a sense of autonomy, all these things we know from research are psychological risk factors that are very difficult to manage. I think that safety managers could look at teams and the, the composition of teams and looking at how people work better together in terms of supporting, that's probably another high-level control in trying to, you know, put people together that work well together. And if you're not working well together, don't just say, hey, see the door, you know, you don't fit in. Put them into a different in, in different environment. And I my, that opens up the question for me, like a lot of times we're putting the onus back on the individual employee and we're talking about, well, let's change their behavior. And so it, it opens up the question of, well, what responsibility does the, the organization in the system have in this? Well, this is it. So I was saying with teams, you know, maybe this needs to be more focus on how people work together as individuals within a within a group. So 
that's complex as well. And, and, and I think I cut Philippa off. She was going to say something. Oh, no, I, I was actually going to echo pretty much the same thing, Sue. Um, and I guess one concept that describes this quite nicely is psychological safety and creating um, psychological safety within your team where people feel safe to come and talk to their supervisor and colleagues about what's going on for them. They feel safe to ask for support. Um, One of the things research shows us is that teams that are psychologically safe and have psychologically safe workspace actually are more open about reporting what mistakes they've done um, because they feel safe to do that. Where environments that have a lot of psychological risks and a team with poor psychological safety, they don't feel safe or happy to be able to say what's going on or say that they're experiencing um, risks in the workplace because their fear of reprisal for that um, overtakes their their, um, need to ask for help. So I think if we can teach teams and teach organisations about the the psychological safety, then that's one way um, in putting in those kinds of more systemic levels of assistance. I think as well, you know, I think that there's a general lack of training around what is psychological risk, what is good mental health, what is poor mental health, what are the signs and symptoms? Because I think generally as a community, community I'm saying here too, as in a workplace community or general community, we really lack empathy. We don't understand what someone uh, uh, what, what someone is experiencing if they're having a mental illness or a mental health issue and the whole thought is oh you're having a mental health issue so now you're mentally ill when you're actually not because you can have a mental health issue anytime any place and it can easily get through uh, for a lot of people depending on what that particular issue is it's not a life sentence and I just think that um, organisations need to spend a whole lot more time just teaching people what is um, declining mental health, what are the signs and symptoms, what do you do about it, where do you go to from here? And, yeah, I, I honestly think we're just starting at ground zero with this at the moment and we've got years of, of educating and, and making us become a far more empathetic society that's supportive and um, helping each other through this journey of life, which isn't exactly a particularly easy journey for many people. And, and I, gr- I agree. We, we do need more understanding of the individual and um, how does different things impact them? And then in turn, how does that impact um, those around them? But I did want to go back to what you were discussing about teams because I think that's a very important, critical discussion to have. Because Teams is so complicated. And what you're really bringing to the discussion is managing our group dynamics. Agreed. I mean, you don't want a team where everyone's the same. They probably all get on very, very well. But you don't get any innovation or creativity or anything if we're all just all clones of each other. So when you bring a team together with, you know, maybe six different personalities, you're going to get conflict. So you have to learn how to be respectful of each other 
And um, you know, we were talking earlier about having respectful boundaries when you're working uh, around other people in both social settings and in, you know, your workplace as well, that you really need to be mindful of the boundaries that people need around them in order to feel safe, which is what we're talking about, psychological safety. Mm. Uh, yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, and part of that is, is having that cognitive diversity that's putting different different kinds of minds to work together. And, no, that, that's not always easy. But that's, um, we know that the most successful teams are, um, that are cognitively diverse and psychologically safe have characteristics such as being curious and encouraging experimental nurturing um, because they feel safe to do that. Um, so putting the right conditions for your team to be performing optimally is part of getting that, getting them best out of your workers too. In addition to that is when a team is forming and group are, group dynamics are developing, there's actual management that needs to go into ensuring that certain roles um, are formed, as well as ensuring that group norms and rules are formed in an appropriate way. And I'm not seeing that occurring. So let me ask you a question then, Tamara. Is it the responsibility of the team or the responsibility of the organisation to create the organisational culture? What do you think? Well, if we look at an organisation, right, it's a it's a um, creation. We've created it. So we're hiring people to come and do a job, and we're bringing people together into a team, and we've designated somebody to be the leader of these people and to be managing these people. And so if we're going to put people together in an artificial way, then I, I would put out the the idea that we have some responsibility to also be mindful of how we want people to be interacting with one another. Mm-hmm. So that's got to be values-driven, right? So some of those desirable behaviours that you're creating need to come from values of the organisations and the people that you've employed. I was going to say, managers should be the ones that are actually purporting the values that they have um, been trained in or, or part of the culture of the organisation to those teams. Your managers should be echoing the company values. If they're not and they're not aligned to the values, then you're going to have teams that really don't have any idea of what is expected of them. So leadership and leadership training and leadership values is absolutely critical. And once again, we come back to training because I don't think that there's enough of that going on for our supervisors and managers, particularly in safety. It's just simply you've got your university degree, get out there and say, and be safe, you know, get out there and manage. So groups do have different stages in their development. So when a group is coming together and they're forming, where does that responsibility lie then? With the individuals or in the organizational system? 
I think it needs to be set by the organisation through the organisational values. So if the organisation values integrity, then the behaviours that you want to see in your employees are demonstrating integrity. So one of the ways an organisation can do this is firstly through setting its clear values at the beginning, but then within the teams, the teams can talk about the behaviours that they want and they should show. And it's also got to have a level of accountability. So, for example, at, your, at the weekly meeting, you can go through the behaviours checklist and go, right, are we doing, you know, are we showing genuine care for people and their wellbeing? Have we done that this week as a team? Yes, what's an example of that? And someone comes up with an example. So, right, we're on track with that behaviour. Um, do we learn and replicate from others? We know that's a helpful behaviour, right? So, yes, okay, we've been doing that this week. Um, and here's an example. And then it's important also to have the behaviours that you don't want to see. So, um, for example, are we blaming others for our own mistakes? And having a team that feels safe enough to come up with those examples is something that we've got to work on as well. That comes back to being feeling that you're psychologically safe um, and putting yourself in a bit of a vulnerable position with your team. Um, but that can be really helpful and that's a way a team can take responsibility for their own behaviours and keep each other um, accountable to those. And it can be tracked between teams and over time. So then you can identify when there are issues going on and when people aren't travelling so well as a team, when there might be psychological risk factors going on. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And so so we, we, we talk about the forming stage, but then what's also not discussed is that there is actually a storming stage. Mm. And can you share maybe, Philippa, what that's about, the storming? Because I think that's what's derailing sometimes. I think the storming stage can be derailing, especially when it's not a new team. So when there's a culture that's already been established and new people are coming into the culture, they can have trouble with the storming stage. But um, typically the storming stage is when people are coming together and they're assessing what are we going to do, what are we, what are our okay ways to interact. Um, and it's a period of a lot of action. And then when people find their rhythm and they learn how they're going to work together, then they go through and they are very productive. But you've got to have the storming stage. You've got to have people uh, setting the expectations first so people know what is and what isn't their culture. And the other part of the, the storming stage is that um, that's when your non-formal leader can emerge. And a lot of times, um, and Sue, so I, I think you can see this also in your work, is that we're struggling with people to follow the procedures or practices that have been presented as the safe thing to do. They're saying, well, people, you know, I've got people who just won't do it. They just disagree to do it. And that's part of the storming stage also where an informal leader comes up and starts to put in some unproductive activities. 
Mm, the question is, though, whether you can allow that to happen because it depends on the safety. And let's face it, we are safety professionals here. Our job is to keep our people psychologically and physically safe in a safe environment. Um, if they are deliberately going outside of the procedure, well, all I can say is they've got to have a damn good excuse as to why. Um, hmm. Perhaps there's a better way. Perhaps, perhaps the procedure doesn't work. Perhaps the procedure's on paper and it isn't actually the way it really does work around here, you know, in the organisation. But um, in terms of psychological safety, I'm not quite sure how they would challenge and go outside of that because I'm not even sure if that's actually written down as to what the safe procedures are around psychological safety. I don't think we've got that far. Have we, Philippa? Have we got psychological safety procedures in place except for in an emergency? No, not really. I think the, the community is still struggling to come up with that. Um, so we can, we can start writing some. That would be good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why I want to talk about, I brought up the, in the, our discussion, the different stages of group development. Because, you know, the forming stage is a really honeymoon period where everybody's kind of um, being polite to one another and kind of testing out the waters. The storming stage is where you've got the, the obstacles of people now sharing their strong personalities and areas of agreement and disagreement. And that needs to be really managed because if we fail to address those conflicts and we allow it to occur long for long periods of time, then the issue we have is that those things that are established in that storming stage, that becomes the norm. And I think that right there is, is what we're struggling with, Sue in health and safety. Yeah, exactly. And if it's the norm and it's not the desired norm, that's when it can do unbelievable harm to um, the psychological health of, of people within those teams. So once again, you're coming back to training, learning to respect, learning to understand um, the impact of your words, of your actions, you need to learn empathy. There is a whole heap of training that needs to occur in the psychological safety space that has not been undertaken by organisations yet. Oh, and one of the things, one of the concerns I have with using the word training is when you, we use the word training, people think like, oh, all I have to do is get people in a room or on an online course and walk them through a PowerPoint. Oh my God, training is so much more advanced now. Please continue, Philippa. Thank you for your enthusiasm. <laughs> you're hitting the nail on the head. And that's why when you were saying training, I was backing you up. Maybe, maybe we should call it learning instead of training. Um, <laughs> maybe, maybe. I'm using a wrong um, term now. <laughs> no, no, it's not the wrong term. It's what the whole industry uses. But um, yeah. I think we found is that there are still some misconceptions around what training is and isn't. Yeah. Um, where true learning and upskilling occurs in really helpful ways. And there's lots of different ways of delivering that training now. 
through micro-learning, through videos, and this is really Sue's area of expertise. Um, but there's so much more engaging ways that we can help our staff to learn new ways of doing it, um, including learning about psychological safety. But, yeah, I'll pass over to Sue. Do you have anything else to add there, Sue? Well, I just think with the explosion of technology, you know, if you are placing your people, your employees in a classroom and giving them death by PowerPoint training, I truly believe that that is um, bordering on psychological abuse. And if you keep training your people that way, you really need to have a look at, at, at what you're doing. It's, it's unacceptable. With, uh, with technology, look, you can go anywhere from micro-learning, video, interactive training into AR, VR, mixed reality, into simulation and so on. It depends on, you know, where you want to go, how big your budget is and, and what you see. But really, the sky's the limit and we're going to get more and more and more of it and it is a really exciting place to be playing right now. And I think to add to that too is that um, there's a whole online opportunity, online community. You know, take the training out of the silo where you're just doing it one-to-one, be it on an app or in death by PowerPoint, and start creating opportunities for people to actually collaborate and learn from one another and and form communal groups where they can be discussing things. Well, that's happening automatically through social media, isn't it? I mean, you're seeing an explosion of it all the way through um, Facebook, I guess, which started it. But there's also your whole LinkedIn groups that are coming together over particular topics and and, and talking about it. Then you look at Twitter and, you know, someone will post something, you know, just a little bit, um, you know, conversational, a little bit controversial, you know, tomorrow you do mm-hmm. these things and then what do you end up with? You end up with this thread of a, of a thousand different comments and so you're bringing in a global community. You know, we don't know each other at all but we're all discussing things and, you know, agreeing, disagreeing and, you know, it, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, you can get lost in social media probably for, you know, half of your life if you really wanted to because there's that much that's going on that we can all be involved in. And if you take that into the workplace, though, could you imagine how empowering and how much knowledge sharing you could be creating inside an organization if you took that concept of a Facebook Yeah, but here here we've got a problem now, haven't we? Because now you've got managers... Who, who won't consider that as work, you know, and, and are we just time-wasting again, you know? I mean, we, we were talking earlier about people working from home, being able to use technology to work from home and work, have a good work-life balance because they can, you know, juggle family commitment around the work commitment. And, and uh, certainly uh, my own personal experience is that can work brilliantly and your workers can be far more productive than they are in the office. Um, however, of course, there's this whole issue of being isolated and lonely and we're into the lone worker syndrome and therefore they need support. Well, this is a fantastic way of doing it is, is getting into online communities that can help you um, and, and support you 
But the problem that we're seeing, and I had a conversation just the other day, was this notion of people working from home is that, oh, no, they're not going to work at home. They're just going to watch Netflix all day. I can't trust them to work at home because they won't be productive. Um, We've got to change that mindset. Um, Work and learning is not nine to five anymore. And I would like to even elevate it. Like if, if I am doing construction, I have a construction company and I want to do, um, you know, update or check in with the crane operators. It'd be much more productive to have an online discussion using a, temp, a, a tool like Zoom with my six or seven crane operators that I have at my different locations and then be speaking with them directly about, well, you know, what is it that you're finding that we need to be looking at? Because the, all the crane operators coming together, they have a common topic of their job. But if I'm having a, a safety meeting and I've got people of different roles in there, I'm not really able to focus down on what those different roles need. No, that's right. But, I mean, we can go one step further. What about bringing in some wearables? He's in the crane operating or she's in the crane operating. Could talk to the watch, couldn't they? You know, you could get information right from the, 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 the source while they're doing the job. Is that really giving you the human element? I think it might be. I mean, I was discussing this with with someone as well last week saying it's really important to be getting real, real world information, you know, right here, right now, not something that we come together and talk about at the end of the week in our safety talk or our pre-start. You know, it would be maybe better if there's something going on to actually check in and get data now, like live data. So wearables, I think, are another way forward. Um, And we're seeing a bit of an explosion. Can you help me better understand how putting on a wearable on people is going to help us with um, identifying and managing psychological issues? Well, there's all your mood trackers, and I'm going to throw back to Philippa on this because she's probably more able to talk about tech and um, psychological injury than myself. Thanks, Sue. Um, so, Tamara, you were saying how can wearable tech increase our capacity to manage psychological safety among the workforce? Yeah, I, I just need you to lead me along here because my unconscious bias is saying. I don't know how having a watch on me is going to really help you understand what I'm going through psychologically. Like, to me, that's a human interaction. So help me understand better. Okay, so there are some ways that you could track physiological symptoms, for example, such as um, heart rate, temperature, which can indicate psychological awareness and stress. Um, but to take it a step back, what wearing a, a smartwatch with some other wearable functions in can do is it can, it can actually increase the human connection because you're closer than ever to someone. It's right on your watch, right? 
So you can have video through your watch. You can contact people immediately through your watch. So therefore, you can be supported in real time. Um, one of the issues is, and Sue touched on it before, is the spontaneity of being able to capture issues as they occur. And this is where wearable tech is offering quite an advantage in its closing that time gap down. So rather than wait to the end of the week for your safety meeting, hey, I can address that now. I can make a short recording. I can report through something. I can make a note to myself. So there's a bunch of different ways that new technology is facilitating psychological safety. If we just go back to our basic mobile phone, you know, I mean, we, we had a discussion about this earlier in the week in, a, in another um, another um, webinar that I was doing is that we're just not using our mobile phones the way that they could actually be used. We, we're very basic with it and the amount of support and, and the amount of, um, for want of our better word, training or learning that can occur just on our phone is, am is amazing and the latest stats is, you know, 99, what is it, 97.5% of um, US um, young men or men um, have a mobile phone. So if that's the case, that's probably the first place we should start is, is using our mobile phone. Yeah, absolutely. And um, mobile phones can decrease some of the stigma around help seeking, especially for men who aren't typically that great at it. Yeah, and it's a way of delivering training really easily as well because this is where your micro-learning comes in with information right. and support and so on. So it's right in your pocket, isn't it? And um, it's private. It's private mm -hmm. too. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Well, um, like for example, a couple of weeks ago, one of my work colleagues came up to me and she said, you know, she was struggling a bit. Um, so we, we had a couple of chats and went for a few walks around the block. Um, and in the space of a week and she's so proactive she's really impressive she had gone to see her doctor and gotten a mental health care plan booked in with a psychologist and then she downloaded an app which was especially designed for her cultural group um, and it talks about different ways of coping and she got onto an online community um, separate to that where people were experiencing similar issues and supporting each other and where they got assigned um, well-being homework every day as well for sort of 15 minutes. So within that week, she had five different mechanisms of support, um, you know, which, which I did assist her to set up, but all, all that she did from her mobile phone, it was amazing. But she relied and, on you, didn't she, Philippa, to know which ones to access so yeah, she wouldn't she know where to start, no. No, she wouldn't. And that's a really key point mm. that is getting people access to quality. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's really tricky because there's a lot of crap on the internet, as we all know. Yep. Yep. Um, so we've actually got to have some standards and best practice set up and some reputable brands like... Um, like tap into safety is a reputable brand, like you know products are going to be supported by data and by research. Where I think uh, we need to educate though. I think managers, as in coming back to the safety managers, they need to know. They need to know where to direct people. They do and they just don't know because no. not educated. So, no. yeah, that's 
the, the key groups that we need to really target now is mm. our safety professionals. Mm. So, so I, I'm just going to break in here for a moment. I'm trying to um, organize this in my thinking as a safety professional. So what am I understanding you to say, so somebody is wearing a smartwatch and we're getting some bio readings that um, these bio readings indicate that somebody is, is experiencing unusual stress. I can then use that data to kind of navigate my way to that, that group of people, maybe one person, maybe I'm seeing a cluster, depending mm-hmm. on what the data is talking to me about. And then from what I'm seeing, I can either, if it's an individual, work with that one individual with some quality time to look at where is this coming from? Is it, um, tactic, is it tactical? Do I need to do some more development of uh, resources in the work site, right? Changing up equipment, et cetera. Or do I need to be maybe helping navigate to um, other resources that might help with a more um, um, cognitive need mm-hmm. oh, yes. am I getting to the right point yes but at the same time as you're assessing this and if it's an individual that you're looking that might not be doing so well you need to be extremely careful now mm-hmm. which is what we were talking about earlier in the week Philippa and I as to what is the appropriate response how far should you intervene before you're actually breaching privacy? It's very difficult to determine what's the appropriate response. Well, that's why it's kind of creepy, Sue, for me. Yeah. That if I'm wearing a wearable Mm. um, and somebody is tracking whether or not I'm having psychological stress, that's a little bit intrusive. Whereas if I'm engaging with a human and maybe the wearable has helped you navigate to me, but now you're just coming in and doing some checks. Uh, My concern is that people are going to lean on the wearables as an opportunity not to do those human checks. And I think that's a very dangerous slippery slope. I understand that people's workplaces are more global and it's harder to get to work sites physically, which is why I brought up the online community for a company concept so that you have a place where people in the company can come online and have discussions work rate, workplace related. And I don't think that that's wasting your time. I think that's providing the company an opportunity to also have a place where they can be evaluating and assessing more what is going on in different places of their business. Like just like a a product, an online community for a product. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it it just depends on how the business wants to, to take it and how their employees react but I know of a business in Perth that were wearing wearables um, and they were tracking heart rate, BMI, um, mood and, and something else. I can't remember what else it was. 
And they had done a whole series of um, information pieces and talked to their staff about why they were doing what they were doing and that it wasn't uh, to spy on them. It was just to try and make the work environment easier for them. And this was a consulting firm, so very, very high stress. And I I had the same qualms you had. I thought, well, why would they buy in? Why would they be interested? But they actually had 80% of people actually voluntarily buy in. And And they looked at the data or they themselves. Like, who are you really protecting? No, they were, in that case, they were. They said they were protecting the worker. Now, I don't know. Um, a business is always going to protect a business. They need to, of course, to be a business. But they were looking after the worker's well-being. That that was their genuine um, concern. And I guess it depends on how you promote it and the values that you put behind it as to whether you're going to get buy-in. In this case, it worked very well. Um, the individual was given access to their own data and quite a few of them improved their health um, activities, including, you know, increasing a little bit of exercise and monitoring their steps in the day. That was one of the things that were on there um, and watch what they were eating, etc. cetera. Um, what the business did with the overall data, I don't know. Um, it's not my business, so I can't tell you, but there certainly wasn't um, a pushback from the employees. They were very happy to contribute. And so this kind of opens up the conversation about then what roles do the various stakeholders have in creating as well as sustaining solutions? Well, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, it's, everyone. <laughs> it's everyone's business. It's the community issue. It's a worker's issue. It's a business issue. Everyone needs to work together on this. It's not that we're prioritising a business need over a personal need or vice versa. It's about optimising your workers and the work environment for them. And so can we drill down on what kind of roles the various stakeholders might be having in this? I think we touched on this earlier. You know, what is the role of the supervisor manager, EHS professional, Um, well, their role is to keep their people physically and psychologically safe. So they do have to um, make sure that, you know, there isn't a breach of procedure where possible and if there is, question why. And they do have to uh, learn what the signs and symptoms are of declining mental health. I I, I believe that's part of their skill set that they need to start to develop. They do need to know where to um, direct people or support people to seek help, their workers. The overarching organisation has to have their values in place. What do we value and what is it that we're going to do supporting our people? And that's a higher level discussion. And the individual employee has a role in looking after their own mental health. So if they're feeling fatigued, they are required to you know, talk to someone about that issue. If they are having a problem at home, they should be confiding and just as um, Philippa was saying, they need to have a, a, a safe team or a safe group or a, a manager that they can trust or, or HR or whoever it is in the organisation that they know that they can contact if they need help. So it is, it's a whole organisational thing and they've all got a part to play. Yeah, that's really well said, Sue. So I agree. <laughs> 
And is there any other stakeholders that they should be also identifying? Well, I guess there's a community because that's a broader and and then family, of course, because family influences. Um, Obviously, businesses have to report to the legislators. So you've got your regulators um, and they're having a bit of an influence at the moment because they're putting in uh, psychological risk as part of the legislation and there's a whole push for mentally healthy workplaces so, and I guess even their customers uh, would be considered um, stakeholders as well because, you know, what kind of organisation are we actually saying we are? What are our values? That comes back to corporate social responsibility, if you like. What do we mean in, in terms of the global, the global organisation or global community? So, um, yeah, I guess we can keep going and, and then finally I guess we'll end in outer space because, you know, it's, it's, it's all of it. It's holistic. <laughs> Thanks. And so before we close out our discussion, because we have come to that time, I wanted to ask the two of you if you could share for our listeners, EHS professionals, what can they do now to help create a solution? So if leaving the podcast today and leaving the show today, and what can they do in the future? So as soon as they are leaving this week and then moving into future thinking. Philippa, do you want to go first? Yeah, sure. Um, I guess some things that come to mind for the person is to take responsibility themselves, that this is something that you own yourself and you're responsible for and that you bring to your team as well. And we all want to positively influence our team, right? So other things that they can do is to check in with maybe three or four different people a week just to have a chat as if they were having a conversation to find out how someone's travelling, if there's anything going on for them. Um, It's about establishing and maintaining those trusted work relationships. So that would be my takeaway is what can you do today and this week to improve your own team and to take more responsibility for your own well-being. Okay, so that's the individual. My take would be what can a health and safety professional do as in a manager, a supervisor or an organisation? And I really believe that they need to look at uh, training or, or learning around signs and symptoms of declining mental health. I think we need to educate um, our entire workforce. I also feel that we should be educating our managers and our supervisors right up to um, director level as to, you know, what what, what we're going to do in terms of uh, supporting our people, what's an appropriate response and how can we move forward together as an organisation So I guess something you could do right now is you could get online and have a look at what there is in terms of um, online resources and generally they're they're less expensive than trying to book, you know, workshops and so on Um, and just see what can you do in terms of technology to try and actually move a whole organisation forward rather than just choosing perhaps a manager or a supervisor to, to perhaps get mental health first aid training, which is lovely 
And the same training that Philippa went through is, is fantastic, but that's just one person in one group, one team. We need to educate everyone and we need to educate them pretty quickly because, you know, the world is always going to throw up emergencies and we've got to be prepared. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much for joining me today and sharing this wealth of knowledge. It was an amazing conversation. It was very interesting. Thank you, Tamara. And thank you, Philippa. You're welcome. Thank you, Tamara. And thank you so much, Sue. That concludes my conversation with Dr. Susan Byrne and Dr. Philippa Milne. I really hope that you found this episode informative. If you're looking for more information and our show notes, please visit safopedia.com, the topic, podcast. And you can find all our podcasts there, including this show. Now, I really hope that you're going to be joining us at our first ever safety online conference in October 2020. That's our Safety Connect conference. So please come and register for free at industryconnectsafety.com. And again, if you're interested in being a speaker or being an exhibitor, email me directly at tamara at safopedia.com and I can help get you set up. It's so exciting. I'm very excited that we're doing this conference. It's just amazing. Now, if you're looking for more resources, safety resources for your team, we have free safety resources at safeopedia.com. And you can find so many resources in the form of white papers, articles, webinars, Q&As that you can be sharing out with your network and your teams. Until next time, stay safe. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the Woman in Safety podcast. Thank you for clicking the subscribe button and sharing it with others. Make sure to visit us at safetywithpurpose.com for more safety leadership and industry discussions.